Schwarzkopf's generals gathered round him, swapping salutes and hail-fellow handshakes. Gus Paganus, the animated Greek logistician. The firebrand Tom Rame, commander of the 1st Infantry Division. Soft-spoken Fred Franks, three-star commander of Seven Corps, whose rolling gait bespoke the leg lost in Cambodia two decades before. All had been junior officers in Southeast Asia, forever seared by the war and the hard peace that followed. They had stayed the course after Vietnam, vowing to restore honor and competence to the American profession of arms, and, most important, to renew the bond between the Republic and its soldiery. This, Safwan, March 3, 1991, was their vindication. For Norman Schwarzkopf and his lieutenants, this war had lasted not six weeks, but twenty years. Schwarzkopf ambled around the armistice tent, nodding his approval. Ducking through the flaps, he eyed the wooden table on which a young major stood, fiddling with the fluorescent lights overhead. I'm not here to give them anything, he boomed, gesturing toward the chairs where the Iraqis soon would sit. I'm here to tell them exactly what they have to do. Re-emerging into the wan sunlight, he tromped about the bivouac, happy warrior, stern proconsul. His satisfaction was fairly won. The last time a Western army had invaded Iraq, the British marched up the Tigris in 1914 and died by the thousands from heat stroke and sickness and Turkish bullets. During the air campaign and land invasion commanded by Schwarzkopf, fewer than 300 Allied soldiers had perished. Among lopsided routes, the victory ranked with Omdurman, where the British and Egyptians in 1898 slew or wounded 20,000 dervishes on the banks of the Nile, or Jena, where Napoleon in 1806 won two simultaneous battles, pursued his foes to the shores of the Baltic, and captured 140,000 prisoners. In Schwarzkopf, the Persian Gulf War would provide America with its first battlefield hero in decades. He had crushed the army of Saddam Hussein at minimal cost, committing no significant error of strategy or tactic. He showed tenacity and fixed purpose, as a good commander must. He also possessed the cardinal virtue of detesting war. Flying north this morning from Kuwait City, he had seethed at the sight of the shattered city below, darkened by the smoke from hundreds of sabotaged oil wells. For the first time, Schwarzkopf had personally witnessed the havoc wreaked by his forces. The endless miles of blackened tanks and trucks, the demolished revetments, the cruciform smudges that had once been Iraqi airplanes. Later, he would liken the trip to a flight into hell. But war was a hell he knew intimately. During a thirty-five-year army career, including two tours in Vietnam, he had been wounded twice. Retaining a junior officer's feel for the battlefield consequences of his decisions in the Gulf Campaign, he had adroitly banked the roaring flux of forces aroused by war to prevent killing from becoming witless slaughter. The troops revered him, shortening his formal title, Commander-in-Chief, Central Command, to simply the CINC. Feared by his enemy, lionized by his nation, 
Schwarzkopf stood, in the admiring assessment of the British commander, Sir Peter de la Billiere, as the man of the match. And yet what anguish he had caused! He was, as George C. Marshall wryly said of MacArthur, conspicuous in the matter of temperament. In the cloister of his Riyadh war room the avuncular public mien disappeared, revealing a man of volcanic outbursts. That is a stupid idea. You're trying to get my soldiers killed, he would bellow at some cringing subordinate. During the previous six months, obliquely or directly, he had threatened to relieve or court-martial his senior ground commander, his naval commander, his air commanders, and both Army Corps commanders. Secretary of Defense Richard B. Cheney had worried sufficiently about Schwarzkopf's temper and his yen for imperial trappings to consider the possibility of...